Hello and welcome to the First Baptist Church of LaGrange. What an honor it is to have you listening to our church broadcast today. We hope that as you listen along, following in your Bible, that you experience the grace and presence of Christ just as strongly as we do every Sunday in our worship service. May God truly bless you as you listen. In his book, Who is Jesus? Dr. R.C. Sproul said, quote, no person in history has provoked as much study, criticism, prejudice, or devotion as Jesus of Nazareth, end quote. Unfortunately, the true picture of who Jesus is has been altered throughout history by various groups as well as individuals. Throughout history, people have sought to alter the picture of Jesus to their own liking so that they might line him up on their side or make him an ally of their causes. You see, the problem is, is that many people have created a Jesus in their own likeness and according to their own prejudices. This morning, I want us to lay down all preconceived ideas of who Jesus is and go straight to the one source that reveals to mankind the real Jesus, the Word of God. Would you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 8? The Gospel of John, chapter 8. And we're going to look at verses 2 through 11 this morning. Our passage this morning is probably a very familiar account uh, from the life of Jesus. But that being said, I want to offer a word of caution. For when it comes to scriptures that we think we are familiar with, we tend to just read through them and not really pay attention to what the Scripture is trying to teach us. And so this morning, I want to ask you, if you are familiar with this text, try to read it with new eyes. Try to read it as if you have never read it before and allow the Lord to draw you into the story so that hopefully you will see Jesus as He truly is. It is our custom uh, to stand uh, together in the honor of reading of, God, of God's Word. And so I would ask you to stand one more time with me. The Gospel of John, chapter 8, 2 through 11. Early in the morning, he came again into the temple, and all the people were coming to him. And he sat down and began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. And having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now, in the, now the law of Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What then do you say? They were saying this, testing him, so that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down with his finger and wrote on the ground. But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and he said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. And when they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. And he was left alone and the woman where she was in the center of the court. Straightening up, Jesus said to her, woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? And she said, no one, Lord. And he said, I do not condemn you either. From now on, go and sin no more. You may be seated. And may the Lord bless the reading and hearing of his word. So as we come to the text today, once again, we find Jesus in the temple 
and a crowd has gathered around him, and he begins to teach them. And never one to miss the opportunity Jesus shares. And then at some point in this teaching, all of a sudden the scribes and the Pharisees show up. And just very quickly, so that we know who we're talking about, who were the Pharisees and the scribes? Well, the Pharisees were a Jewish sect that held strictly uh, to the observance of both the traditional and written law of the Jews. The scribes were experts in the law of Moses. Now, many of the scribes were also Pharisees, but just because you were a Pharisee did not necessarily mean uh, that you were also a scribe. But can you almost see this scene? Jesus is sitting here, probably much like this, uh, except again, y'all would be standing. And all of a sudden, in the back, we, you hear some rumbling. And there are some men dragging a woman down the aisle until they get to the very front. And they cast her in front of Jesus. And look at verse 4 and 5 again. It says, And they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery, in the very act. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? It's interesting that they begin with the polite title of teacher. But yet we know they had no intention of showing Jesus any respect You see, they have brought this woman before Jesus simply to use her and her situation in order to trap Jesus. How do we know this? Verse 6 tells us. Look at verse 6. They were saying this, testing him, so that they might have grounds for accusing him. See, this is not new behavior on behalf of the religious leaders As you know, as you read the Gospels, you see the religious leaders are constantly looking for ways to discredit Jesus or to accuse him, basically to get rid of him. Each time they thought that they had him trapped, but each time Jesus would turn the tables on them. Each time he would either say or do something that would catch them completely off guard. And in this instance, they believed that they had Jesus between a rock and a hard place. They really thought that, okay, now we got him. Look again at verses 3 through 5. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, and having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now in the the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? So there's no doubt here, this is a clear violation of the seventh commandment, right? Not only has she been caught in the act of adultery, but it says that she was caught in the very act. So there's no doubt here of of her guilt. And the law is clear, right? In Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10, the law stated, if there is a man who commits adultery with another man's wife, one who commits adultery with his friend's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall be put to death. Deuteronomy chapter 22 also states, If a man is found lying with a married woman, then both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman, thus shall you purge the evil from Israel. So, what is Jesus to do here? If Jesus says, let her go, then he would be encouraging the breaking of the law of Moses, and they would have reason to accuse him. Okay, so he can't do that. 
But then what if he says, stone her? What would be the consequences of that? One, he would lose his influence with the people. Because you remember, Jesus is called the friend of sinners. He preached a message of love and forgiveness. If he says, stone her, then he would be viewed as a hypocrite. But also, if he said, stone her, he would be in violation of Roman law. For remember, when the Romans took over, they took away the Jews' ability to invoke capital punishment. Remember, why did they go to Pilate with Jesus? They needed Pilate's approval to have him killed. So if he stones, says stone her, then they got him in trouble with Rome. So you see, they, re- they think they have him between a rock and a hard place. It seems to be a lose-lose situation for Jesus. But before we take a look at how Jesus responds, upon reading this text, something does not seem right to me. And it probably doesn't seem right to you. Something seems a little bit off. Now, most scholars believe that this whole situation was actually a setup by the religious leaders. That they set this woman up. Today we would call this entrapment by the authorities. So, looking at this, what is the first question that a logical person would ask about this situation? Where's the man? Where's the man? Because the law says that both the man and the woman should be put to death. But the man is nowhere to be found. The fact that he's not there leads us to believe that he had been enlisted by the religious leaders. Some, some scholars even, and again it's speculation, we don't know, but some scholars even wonder if one of those religious leaders was not the man himself, but that he had been granted immunity in order to entrap Jesus so that they could accomplish their plan. The next question that one would ask is, well, what about these witnesses? Where are the witnesses? Under rabbinic law, it was actually nearly impossible to secure a death penalty in the case of adultery. And why it was nearly impossible, again, is because you had to have at least two witnesses, two to three witnesses, and they had to not only observe something that seemed questionable, but they actually had to see the act happen. They had to physically be present. They had to be present all at the same time and give the same exact account without variation. Again, which is almost impossible unless you have set up the situation. There's an amazing irony here in their accusation against this woman. So again, they're accusing this woman of breaking the law, breaking the seventh commandment, and yet they're the ones that set up the situation in which this woman fell into sin. They used this woman. They took advantage of her. And then by not holding the man accountable for his part in the sinful action, they are also breaking the law. But let's see what Jesus' response to this is. The second part of verse 6, Jesus, it says, But he stooped down, and with his finger, he began to write in the ground. Now, the million-dollar question from the day that this happened 
until this day, and it will continue to be the question until Jesus returned is what? What did he write? Right? Are you ready for the answer? We don't know. (laughs) We don't know what he wrote. You know, it's interesting. This is the only time in the Gospels that we read about Jesus actually writing something down, and yet we don't know what he wrote. I mean, who here wants to know what he wrote? Right? What, what did he wrote? What did he write? We have, we have no idea. As I've said, there, scholars have put forth many different ideas of possibilities of things that he uh, might have written, but hear me. Any of those are just speculation, okay? They're just speculation. But some of the things that we commonly hear uh, that he wrote, and it very well could be, but we don't know, is that he was writing out the sins of those leaders. The various sins that they were currently engaged in, he was writing those out. Another possibility is that he was writing out the Ten Commandments which would be an interesting one because it says that he wrote it with his finger. Well, if you go back into the book of Exodus, you see in Exodus chapter 31, verse 18, when he had finished speaking with him upon Mount Sinai, he being God, gave Moses the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written by the finger of God. So it would be an interesting connection. Here you have God in the Old Testament and Jesus the embodiment of God, the second person of the Trinity, writing out the Ten Commandments. But regardless of whatever it is that he was writing, at that time, they were not paying attention to that. They were waiting for a verbal response. And in verses 7 and 8 we read, but, but when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and he said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. Can can you see this? Can you visualize this? Jesus is writing and they keep persisting. Give us an answer. Give us an answer. And he finally stands up and imagine. He who's without sin cast the first stone. For the first time, now, they see what he's doing. And he turns the tables. And what's their response? Verse 9. And when they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. And he was left alone, and the woman where she was, in the center of the court. Can you see their faces? Before he answers them, you can just see the smugness on their face. We got him. And then he says, he who's without sin, cast the first stone. And it's like poking a hole in the balloon, right? In the air, they're just deflated. Why? Because they were confronted with their own sin and they could not respond. And they leave. So who's left? We have Jesus. We have the woman. And don't forget, we have the crowd. The crowd's still there, okay? They were there before the religious leaders. And let me ask you, if you were there, would you have left? No, I want to see how this plays out, right? The crowd's there. Now, 
Let's look at the final two verses. For it is in Jesus' response to this woman that we see the real Jesus. Straightening up, Jesus said to her, Where are they? Did no one condemn you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. From now on, sin no more. So the question that I pose to you today, it's the, question, it's the title of the sermon, is who is the real Jesus? I think here in these couple, these couple of verses, I want to point out three different things. First, Jesus is full of compassion. Jesus is full of compassion. For the first time, Jesus addresses the woman. Before now, all his attention has been on these leaders, but now he looks to the woman. And notice how he says, he calls her woman. Now in our day, this might seem like a harsh or even disrespectful form of address, but in Jesus' day, it was not. If you remember, at the end of the Gospel of John, when Jesus is on the cross and he sees his mother in John 19, 26, he says, when Jesus then saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. There was compassion in his voice when Jesus referred to this woman as woman. There was care. For Jesus saw the hurt and the brokenness in this woman. Again, this woman had been used and abused by the religious leaders in their quest to trap Jesus. Place yourself in her position. Imagine the embarrassment that this woman must have felt. Imagine the shame. It says she was caught in the very act. She was taken right from that place. We don't know. Again, maybe this is speculation, but I think there's good reason to believe they didn't say, hey, why don't you just get dressed and come with us? No. More than likely, they yanked this woman out of bed. Maybe she was able to grab the sheet and cover up. Maybe she wasn't. And she was brought and flung before Jesus. So imagine the shame, the humiliation, the fear that this woman must have felt. This woman was traumatized. But when Jesus looked at this woman, what did he see? Did he see a woman who had broken the seventh commandment and who should be stoned? I don't think so. Jesus had compassion and he saw her as a sheep without a shepherd. He saw her as a sinner who needed a savior. And it was out of that understanding that he showed compassion. Jesus is full of compassion. Secondly, Jesus is full of mercy. Jesus is full of mercy. Mercy is God not giving us what we deserve. For make no mistake, this woman was guilty. We're not trying to hide that fact. Though she had been set up by the religious leaders, she still committed the act of adultery of her own free will. In no way in this passage is Jesus excusing this woman of her sin. He's not just saying, oh, it's okay, don't worry about it, just don't do it again. That's not what he's saying. Because you see, sin is serious in the eyes of God. In the book of Romans, chapter 6, verse 23, the Bible tells us, for the wages of sin is what? 
death. Well, what is a wage? A wage is a payment, right? Something that you earn. You do a job, you get paid a wage. So when the Bible says, for the wages of sin is death, it's saying the payment for sin is death. So sin is no joke. God takes sin very seriously. In fact, if he did not take sin seriously, then why did Jesus, the Son of God, have to give his life to pay the price for sin? No. Jesus was full of mercy. He told her, go and sin no more. Basically, what he was telling her is stop living this life of sin. He was calling for her to make a change in her life. Yes, this woman deserved to be stoned. And Jesus would have been completely within his right to stone her. But why didn't he? Lastly, Jesus is full of grace. Jesus is full of grace. And what is grace? Grace, while while mercy is God not giving us what we deserve, grace is God giving us what we don't deserve. You see, grace is God's unmerited favor towards us. Verse 11, again, it says, And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go, from now on, sin no more. As I said earlier, sin is no joke. Sin is a big deal to God. But guess what? Grace is an even bigger deal. One of the very first verses that children learn in church is John 3.16. And this is obviously a very important verse uh, to learn But one that's often forgotten is the verse right after John 3.16 that is just as important. John 3.17 says, For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. Jesus was not looking to condemn this woman for her sins. He wanted to save her from her sins. What gave Jesus the right to tell this woman that he would not condemn her? He had the right because soon he would go to the cross to pay the penalty for her sin. You see, while the religious leaders were in the rock-throwing business, Jesus is in the grace-giving business and in the saving business. Hear me, church. The grace that Jesus offers is not cheap grace. It's costly. It costs the Son of God His life. What this woman needed in this moment was not condemnation, but she needed the grace of God extended to her. And that's exactly what Jesus did. But don't miss the order of the words here. Notice Jesus did not say, go, sin no more, and I will not condemn you. For you see, if God's grace were contingent upon our no longer sinning, what hope would any of us have? Jesus said, I do not condemn you. Now, go and sin no more. For you see, once we have received the grace of God, once we have been forgiven by Christ, we can cast off the chains of sin. We no longer have to live a life that is enslaved by sin. 
I'm telling you, church, if you're here today and you've received the grace of Jesus Christ and you find yourself bound in a life of sin, you are only there by your own choice. Because you have been freed. You don't have to continue to to live in that sin. Christ has freed you from that sin. When Christ told her, go and from now on sin no more, it's a challenge to her and it's a challenge to us to repent, to turn from whatever way we're going, which is what the word repentance means. It means if you're walking in this direction, you would stop, turn, and go in the opposite direction. If we are walking in sin, we need to stop and repent and walk in the grace of Christ. So as we come to the end of our time together, we have to ask this question now. So what? So what? What is it that we're supposed to do with this story? What am I supposed to do when I come face to face with the real Jesus? Well, you have to ask yourself, who am I in this story? Am I a part of the crowd? Am I one of the religious leaders? Or maybe I'm the woman. Because make no mistake, each of us can relate to one of these. I wonder if there's anyone here today that maybe is like the people in the crowd. Maybe you're here today and like the crowd, you've witnessed the grace of God. But like the crowd, you just stand there observing and you do nothing. You've, not, you've never responded to the grace which Jesus offers you. If that's you in a moment, you're going to have an opportunity to respond to the grace that Christ has extended to you. And it's so simple. It's so simple. The Bible tells us in Romans 10 verse 9 that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, the Bible says that you will be saved. Or maybe you're here today and you'd say, maybe I'm like the scribes and the Pharisees. Maybe you're here today and you're quick to judge other people's sin. All the while, you're blinded to your own sin. When confronted with their own sin, instead of turning to Jesus, they walked away from him. Instead of accepting his forgiveness, his mercy, and his grace, they just went on their way. I wonder if right now, maybe the Holy Spirit isn't speaking to your heart. Maybe you're engaged in some kind of sinful behavior right now and the Holy Spirit's just really speaking to you. Don't, don't turn away from him. Turn to Jesus. Confess your sin to the Lord today. Turn, repent of that, and walk in the grace of Jesus Christ today. Or maybe you're here today and you're like the woman. You've been living a life of sin. You know it. Other people may know it. Or even if they don't, no one else knows it. God knows it. 
I want you to know today that if that's you, Jesus is not looking to condemn you. He wants to rescue you from your sin. He wants to set you on a different path, a better path than the one that you're on. He wants to shower you with his grace today. And all you have to do is just say yes. You know, there may be some here today who would say, Pastor, you don't know the things that I've done in my past. Or, Pastor, you don't know what I'm doing right now. You don't know how broken and messed up I am. And you're right, I don't know. But Jesus does. And I'll tell you this, when you come to Jesus with your guilt, when you come to him with your sin, he's not going to meet you with condemnation. He's going to meet you with his grace. I heard a pastor say once, Jesus is a master of taking that which is broken and making it new. There is one thing that I know for certain today. And it's that your sin and my sin is not greater than His grace. And from my good buddy Wayne Tony, this reminds me of an old hymn. And it goes like this. Grace, grace. God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace. God's grace. Grace that is greater than all our sins. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, thank you, Lord Jesus, for your grace. Thank you that you came and that you lived a sinless life. You perfectly fulfilled the law and you went to the cross and you paid the price for our sin. That if we would just turn to you, confess our sin, repent of our sin and accept the grace which you so freely bestow on all who believe that we could be saved. Today, Father, if there's anyone in your house that has never placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, I pray today, Lord God, that they would say yes to Jesus. Lord, if there's anyone here today that they've already said yes, Lord, but they're maybe not living in sin right now, not, not, not on the path that you called us to, Father. God, I pray today that they would turn from that, God. God, I pray whatever decisions need to be made in this time, that you would move, God. In Jesus' name, amen. This is an opportunity.